I can't be the only person in this room who struggles with getting some tasks accomplished, can I? It's not, not just me that struggles with this. Maybe just now you have exchanged glances with someone because you might have had a conversation about those unnecessary delays just this past week. Maybe you had a conversation on the way to church about that. I don't know. This is a pretty common thing. It's a real problem. Whether it is a little task like kids, I know you've done this because I did it when I was a kid, waiting until the absolute last minute to do your chores before your parents get home, that's, that's procrastination, but it's a small thing. I mean, it might get you in big trouble, but it's a small thing. Or maybe you have a problem with bigger tasks. Say maybe you don't start working on your taxes till April 15th. There's little things that we procrastinate with. There are big things. This shows up in our lives on so many different levels. Now, usually we know that this is a bad idea. But in the moment, we excuse it for so many reasons, don't we? Maybe we have uncertainty about the task. Maybe we don't even know where to begin. Maybe I procrastinated with this sermon a little bit because I wasn't sure where to go with the story of Esau and Jacob coming together. I'm not saying I did, but I might have. It's a real issue. We do this all the time. Maybe we're uncertain about the task that's going to come after the one we're putting off. Now, just this past week, I came across a video of someone talking about this idea of putting things off. Specifically, this person was talking about avoiding difficult circumstances. And this person suggested that it's actually best to just do it. You know, we know this. It's good to get it out of the way, but the way this person expressed it really stuck out to me. He said, the reason we want to do these difficult tasks and and get on them is because it's much better to fight the dragon in the cave. It's better to go to the dragon and slay it than to be walking around life and having it sneak up on you, right? And he said, if you go early, maybe the dragon won't be full-sized yet, and you can slay the dragon before it's big enough to fully consume you. And so we come to this passage that we read from Genesis 33, and we've seen that Jacob is now going to address his issues with his brother, the brother that he has double-crossed. Now, instead of apologizing and making amends right away when this happened, what did he do? He ran away. And so now his problem is a full-sized dragon. So much so that he was nervous last week, we saw this, that this dragon was going to sneak up on him and consume him, right? This is a big problem that Jacob has not taken care of. He was worried, as we saw last week, that that it wasn't even going to get him in the middle of the night. And now we've seen in previous chapters how this problem of Jacob's was an ever-present reality in his mind. It was affecting his departure from where he was with Laban in the east, and eventually God sovereignly ordained that he would not be able to go back to Laban, but that Jacob had to press forward. But we know that he was afraid. He divided his camp into the two groups to protect them from all being overtaken if Esau attacked And then, as I mentioned before last week, we saw Jacob attacked in the middle of the night. But it wasn't Esau that attacked him. 
It wasn't an assassin that was hired by Esau. It was the angel of the Lord. And and this event showed us all that we've seen in the life of Jacob was truly not a struggle with people. It was a struggle with God. From the very beginning, Jacob has thought that he was struggling with men. But his fight, his struggle, his wrestling match was with God. And today, we find that Jacob is finally dealing with the dragon. He's finally dealing with the biggest issue in his life so far. He has put off reconciling with his brother and has lived in fear for so many years. But today, he is coming face to face with what he has run from for so many years. And so as we look at this resolution to this long conflict in the life of Jacob, we will once again break the story down into three parts uh, so that maybe we can find some useful application for ourselves from it. And the first thing we're going to see is that Jacob is reunited with his brother. This, This reunion has been the dark cloud over nearly the entire story of Jacob, right? The feeling in the story has been one of uncertainty and fear because we know that Jacob is guilty. He's deceived his brother. He stole the birthright. He stole the blessing. We know he's guilty. But finally, the the twins who struggled against one another in the womb, there's been a battle this whole time starting in the womb, they're finally going to be brought back together. Secondly, we find that the reunion is actually a peaceful one. The tension has been building in the text. It gives us an idea that this homecoming won't be a good one. Esau had 400 men with him. We read about that last week. And so we assume that that he is going to overwhelm Jacob and his family. But how easily we forget that the Lord is on Jacob's side. And he will ordain the safety of Jacob, the one on whom the covenant rests. And finally, we see that Jacob settles in the land of the promise. The promise of God was that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars. And that they would inherit this land. Well, Jacob's deception led him out of the land. He went east, away from the presence of God. And the fear of Esau kept him away from the presence of God. But now, God has ordained his return. And so we're going to see the faithfulness of God on display once again in the life of Jacob. And so we land in the first part of the 33rd chapter of Genesis. And it's important that we sort of recall what we saw in chapter 32. We we see here that Jacob is lifting up his eyes, but let's remember the important details of what he's been doing. His, His wrestling match with God has just concluded. And remember what happened as a result of that encounter with God. Remember, God struck his hip, and and Jacob is limping. He's moving with a limp. It's a fresh injury, so he's probably limping more than he will ever limp with it, right? He's still in pain. Now, remember, in the original languages, we don't have chapter breaks. We don't have verse numbers in these stories. So this is all one story. We we miss this with the breaks between chapter 32 and chapter 33. And, And naturally, that... In the way the story is told, we do sort of feel a break here, but we can tell that this is a continuation of that story. Jacob is limping as he is going towards Esau. And that limp is is a reminder of how God has been faithful to Jacob. And so we imagine this story in our mind's eyes. And while we do that, we would do well to imagine that Jacob is limping as he goes towards Esau. 
It does us well to think of that in our mind's eye because that limp, as we saw last week, is a reminder of the faithfulness of God, that God is the one who has directed his path. And so the text moves quickly here. We see the, the, the story unfold rather quickly because Jacob finishes his encounter with God in chapter 32, and then we see a substantial word here. It's a Bible word. We don't say this very often, but that word is behold, right? When the Bible says behold, it's time to pay attention because the idea is behold, there Esau is. Jacob has been correct in being concerned this whole time. It wasn't just paranoia. We were correct in thinking the attack on Jacob in the middle of the night might have been some agent of Esau because Jacob's brother and his 400 men have obviously been close. Jacob being antsy in the middle of the night, that wasn't just paranoia. It was well-founded. Esau is here. And so the moment of truth has arrived. And as I mentioned in, in past weeks, when Jacob was dividing up his family and possessions, this story gets awkward real quick again, doesn't it? You know, I talked about how awkward it would be to divide the family up and, and do this. This makes it even worse because everyone finds out just how they rank with the head of their clan, right? The children are divided between Leah and Rachel and the two servants. Now, that doesn't sound too bad. Go with your mom. It doesn't seem like a big deal, right? But what else does he do? The details here get really awkward. I'm guessing that most of the people in Jacob's life probably knew where they stood with Jacob. They probably knew that Joseph was the favorite. In fact, we're going to see that further on in the text. They know where they rank. But isn't the order that Jacob puts them in saying the quiet part out loud, right? Everybody knew it, but now he's making it obvious. The servants with their children are up front. Then Leah and her children, and then Rachel and Joseph. We're seeing the ranking here. And for all the feelings that these details invoke in us of that not being very fair, it does show us something rather significant. Despite the recent reminder that, that God is on his side and, and the limp that he has is to remind him of this truth, Jacob is still very afraid. He is concerned for the safety of himself and of the ones that he loves. And it's important to note that Jacob doesn't run. He doesn't leave his family behind. He doesn't try to squirm out of the situation this time. Instead, he puts himself out front. He owns up to what is coming his way. Jacob has grown up. He's taking what he deserves. He is going out front to protect his family. And we see him doing something interesting that, that really seems off to us because we don't understand it. Our, our world doesn't operate this way, but we would ask, why is he bowing himself to the ground seven times? Well, this is a traditional greeting for the vassal towards a superior. Even though Jacob has the birthright that he stole from Esau, and even though he is the one who received the blessing from Isaac, Jacob is terrified of Esau. He knows that God is on his side, but he is still very afraid. And so he wants it to be certain 
that Esau knows that he considers himself to be inferior. He is the vassal, he is the servant, and and Esau is the Lord. He considers himself to be inferior. And Jacob is expressing that he is inferior and merely a servant of Esau by these acts. But as we move on to our second point and the next section of the passage, we will see that Esau doesn't see things that way. We will find that the reunion between the two brothers is a peaceful one. And what we, see, what we saw Jacob doing was the actions of someone who wants to be seen as a servant, right? But we see something completely different in Esau. He doesn't stand there and say, come to me, servant, bow before me, kiss my ring, whatever they would do. Instead, he runs to Jacob, and he embraces him. Reading the story, we get the idea that we should expect Esau to be an adversary of Jacob. But instead, Esau treats Jacob like a brother. He falls on his neck, and he kisses him. And the two brothers weep. Really, this is what we've been living in fear of all these years? This is the dark cloud over the story of Jacob? Jacob might be thinking, I went through the awkward situation of ranking my family for this. This is completely unexpected. We don't expect Esau to show mercy. We don't expect Esau to weep seeing his brother because he has been deceived. And what we see here is that God truly has been sovereignly protecting Jacob all along. And some of the details given in the story here kind of endear us to Esau, right? Right? He not only hugs Jacob and weeps with him, he looks up and he sees the family of Jacob and he wants to know who they are. He wants to know his sisters-in-law and his nephews and his niece. And it's interesting how Jacob replies. They are the children that God has graciously given your servant. And it almost feels as though Jacob is subtly letting his brother know, hey, God's on my side here, buddy. I know this, we've just hugged and wept, but God and I, we're tight, man. We're tight. It's, it's kind of like this, this casual way of him saying, the Lord's on my side. He wants Esau to know that God has been blessing him. And so the introductions take place, and notice what they all do. They do the same thing that Jacob did. They, they bow down. They've either received instruction from Jacob to do this, or they're emulating what they have seen Jacob do because they're afraid. So everyone comes and bows before Esau, the servants and their children, Leah and her children, finally, Rachel and Joseph. And you have to kind of wonder if there was a running commentary going on as the people came forward to meet Esau, don't you? You know, did Leah come forward and Jacob said something like, I know she's not very good looking, but this is why we're married. You know, I really wanted her. Look at her instead, right? Look at Rachel. You got to wonder if there's a running commentary going on. Uh, Maybe the stories of of where he's been came up as he tells the stories of his children. Because this whole thing kind of feels like a family reunion, doesn't it? I I think we've all been in that situation, and I would call it an awkward situation, where you either have to introduce everyone in your family or you have to be introduced. You You know how awkward that was when you were a kid? Your parents would meet somebody and you didn't know who they were, they hadn't seen them in forever, and you have to stand there, and first your sister would go, and then they'd introduce you, and you're kind of like, am I supposed to know this person? And 
Am I supposed to remember their name and care? You know, that kind of thing. This whole thing is like an awkward family reunion. But regardless of the feelings and logistics involved, this is a family reunion, and Esau continues to want Jacob to know that this is good. This is a good reunion. And Esau wants to know what the deal was with the big bunch of livestock he received from Jacob. What's that all about? And you have to wonder if this is all a show from Esau, because the gift was accompanied by servants who told them what the gift was for, right? Regardless, Jacob lets Esau know that it was to find favor in his sight. He is again driving home the idea that he sees himself as an inferior to Esau, but the elder brother wants nothing to do with it. In their back and forth of, of this whole thing, you know, take it, don't take it, take it, no. I, you know, this whole thing, eventually, Jacob says, he says that he has seen the face of Esau, and it's like seeing the face of God. So what in the world is, is that all about? Remember, Jacob has just named the place that they're at Peniel. That happened in chapter 32. And it means the face of God because he had just wrestled with God. He had been face to face with God. And now Jacob is comparing the face of Esau with the face of God. What? Why would he do that? Well, Jacob commented on the face of God after wrestling with him And the idea that he expressed was that God had shown him mercy. I was face to face with God, yet I have survived. He was in the presence of God, and he was spared. Now, even though Jacob deserves Esau to be angry with him, he's done a whole bunch of stuff to wrong Esau. Esau instead has shown mercy to Jacob. And so he insists that he doesn't have to take the gifts because he is being merciful. Well, eventually the discussion goes on and on. Jacob reminds Esau that God has been gracious to him, that he has been blessed by God, and and the result of this discussion is that Esau eventually receives the gift of the livestock from Jacob. We don't know his motive. We don't know if he wanted it all along, but he takes it. But even though there is goodwill displayed here, We see that the reconciliation doesn't mean that they are going to be neighbors. Esau kind of wants it that way. He wants them to follow. But that's not what happens. Jacob still doesn't trust. They wept on each other's necks. They they shared with each other who their family is. But Jacob still doesn't trust him. Jacob wants to settle apart from him. And so he deceives Esau again. He goes to Succoth which means booze. And so they made little booze or little shacks for the livestock there. And so this was another awkward back and forth. You know, yeah, why don't you go ahead, Esau? You know, the kids are slow. You know how kids are, Esau. The livestock are saying, you know how that goes. Why don't you go ahead? And so this is a part of the deception that that is around Jacob here because Jacob doesn't trust Esau. So So he goes his own way. He finishes up going to a different place. And so as we finish up the passage, we find Jacob truly settling in the land, but he's not settling by Esau. We discover our final point for the day, though, as we see Jacob settling in the land. 
We see in verses 33, or chapter 33, verses 18 through, 20, 18 through 20, that the story continues, and we can imply here from what the text says that, that there's time passing. Succoth was not the place that Jacob was going to dwell. He continued on to Shechem, and which we read is in the land of Canaan. And so to understand this as best we can, Shechem is straight west of Succoth, but it's on the other side of the Jordan River. It is in the promised land. It's in the land of the promise. He's continuing to move into Canaan, the, the land that God has promised. You and I aren't experts in Middle East geography, but we can understand it's due west on the other side of the river. We understand the border. We understand that he is going to where he is meant to be. That's the big point being drawn out here. The point is that Jacob is in the land. He has come to the place that is promised to his people. But like Abraham and Isaac before him, we don't see Jacob recruiting an army and overthrowing people to take possession of the land on his own. We just don't see this. He's not trusting in his own power. Like, like Abraham and Isaac before him, he's moving into the land and trusting that God is going to give it to him someday. He has faith. And so as we read this story, we're reminded of Jacob's past. He has come here before. He has camped at this place on his previous journeys. But now he's returned, and we find that he wants to lay claim to a piece of the land. He's not passing through anymore. He wants a piece of the land, and so he does it legally. This is an act of faith because he doesn't squat on the land. He doesn't get his people together and take it by force. He buys some of the land, and he pitches his tent. He says, I'm going to take possession of this land I'm going to own it legally, and I'm going to trust that God's going to give me and my family the rest of it. He believes the promise of God. And so he and his family set up camp on this land, and then he does something really important. He erects an altar. He offers a sacrifice to the Lord. He understands who it is that has brought him into the land and who it is that will guide his path going forward. Jacob, the deceiver, has come a long way. It's been a long road. It took him a long time to acknowledge the Lord as his God, but now he has gone even further than simply saying, the Lord is my God. He's offering a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to the one who has brought him through the storm, who's brought him to the place where he now has a piece of the land that was promised to him. And way back in Genesis 12, his grandfather Abraham erected an altar near Shechem as well. So this is a sacred spot. And we see the significance in all of this in the name that Jacob gives the place where he erects this altar. It is called El Elohe Israel. And it literally means God, the God of Israel. Remember, that's Jacob's new name. That's the name God gave Jacob, Israel. And so Jacob is laying hold of this new name, and he's acknowledging that God is not only the God of his father, he's not only the God of his grandfather Abraham, but he's saying God is the God of Israel. He is the God of Jacob. That's who God is. He has come a long way. He's finally laying claim to the promises fully for himself. Jacob is making a confession of faith here with this altar. And he's doing it with the name that God has given him. He is a changed man. So what a journey. 
We've been on with Jacob. He was born a deceiver, and he proved the moniker of his name was true all along. And now, but now we find out that God has him exactly where he intends him to be. And Jacob is acknowledging that it was God who brought him all the way home in the first place. All the fights and all the fears, all the struggles and all the missteps, and yet God has sovereignly guided the one, the one who is in the line to the Messiah, that he might be his faithful servant so that one day all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And so we come to the end of Jacob's struggle with Esau. And we find that while his concern was understandable, God was guiding and protecting Jacob just as he promised he would. For all the fear, God was in control the whole time. And so, as we seek to apply this passage for ourselves today, I believe that's exactly where you and I need to land in this passage. Just as Jacob struggled with God and with man, you and I experience the same thing. Life isn't easy. And in fact, at many times it is very difficult. We find ourselves wondering what is going on and maybe we even feel that God has abandoned us. We don't know what Jacob's thoughts were while he was laboring for the hand of Rachel for 14 years. But I'm guessing he wasn't out in the fields thinking about how Laban had tricked him and he was saying, that was bad, but I bet God will work all things together for good. I, I doubt he was at that place yet. And it would have been difficult to. And, and we don't find ourselves in that place in our lives very often either, do we? But it was true. God did work all things together for good in his life. And the struggles that, that you and I encounter are difficult as well. But as we see in the story of Jacob, we can have a trust that the one who loves us will lead us all the way home. God led Jacob back to the land. He had his hand upon him. And just as Jacob struggled with God and with man, you and I can experience the same thing. But we can know, we can know that he will bring us all the way home. Now you and I know that this is true. Because we have struggles. We know that this happens, but we can trust that God will lead us home because we have a sure promise. We know the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus. Now, the journey of Jacob was unexpected. And in the same way, the salvation that you and I have in Jesus is unexpected. Because you and I would never guess that salvation would come through a crucified Savior who bore the wrath of God in our very own flesh. We wouldn't expect that. But we know that this is what guarantees that God will lead us all the way home. Our human minds would, would never expect to be saved through suffering. And yet that is the salvation that we have received, and it's the salvation that we trust will bring us all the way home. So just as Jacob's life is unexpected, ours are unexpected, but the greatest news is that we have that unexpected salvation in Christ that helps you and I to know that we have a sure and certain salvation and that God brings us all the way home. And so as we consider seeing, consider this story where we see Jacob arriving at his destination, may you and I step out into the world. Jacob has arrived, but our journey, there's still a lot 
to happen. There's still more of a journey in the life of Jacob too. But for us, we think about this truth that even though we experience struggles and hardships, our God is using those things to bring us to where he intends us to be. And that is safe with him. So may you and I look to that certain promise and find comfort that God is our God and he alone is worthy of our praise and devotion. Amen.